Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, uh, says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain uh, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this text that we just read contains uh, the final commands of Christ uh, to his disciples while he was physically on the earth after his resurrection and before his ascension. And these series of commands that we just read have commonly become known, of course, uh, as the Great Commission. But what I want us to see tonight is that um, there's both a commission and there's also a call of command. There's a command of commission, there's a command of call, and both of these are founded on uh, on something that is probably more powerful than any of us will ever be able to grasp. Now, of course, um, the followers of Christ are commanded to do certain things here. They're commanded to go and preach the gospel to everybody they can get in front of all over the world. Um, they're commanded to make disciples all over the world. Uh, we're commanded to baptize believers uh, and teach uh, the obedience to God's commandments to to believers, um, and we're given a promise there as we do these things, we're guaranteed that Jesus will never leave us, He'll never forsake us, rather He will be with us through all things, enduring through all things with us until the end of time. However, it's on the basis on which the Lord Jesus uh, commands His disciples to go out and do these things that we begin to see that there's also a call given along with this commission. If you look in verse 18 again, we see that the foundation of both the commission and the call is when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, Jesus, upon his resurrection and ascension, really received back what he had freely given up. When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, that's almost a strange statement because he's God and he's always been God. He's the eternal God. So when it says all authority has been given to him, that, that should make the curious mind ponder and say, what do you mean it's his? How's it given? So we need to go through a process of what Christ willingly subjected himself to so we can see how he gets to the point where what is his is now being given back to him and why it's being given back to him. So if we look in Philippians 2, starting in verse 6, it tells of God the Son, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, what kind of power... Did Jesus lay aside? That's really what's happening here. The theological term is kenosis. Um, it's Jesus being God of all, God of God. He does not count equality with God something he has to white knuckle and hang on to and grasp for dear life, but he freely lays it aside, for lack of a better term, lays his God powers, I guess you could say, aside for a certain period of time, and he takes on flesh. What kind of power exactly was he laying aside? That's really important for us to understand, because if we don't understand that, we don't understand really the Great Commission, to be honest with you. Um, if you look in Colossians 1... It speaks of Jesus saying, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now, we need to break that down just one second. All things were created by Christ. He has the power to create all things. And it lists out heaven and earth. Now, there, there's, there's, a, there's a nuance here. When, it, when the Bible couples heaven and earth in that way, usually or in the context that we're in here, it doesn't necessarily mean heaven like we think about where God is seated right now. It means if you go out with a telescope right now and you look at Orion's belt or any of the other constellations, if you look at Jupiter or Mars or any of the planets out there, or if you got into a spaceship and you went a million light years away on the other side of the sun... That is the heavens that he's talking about. It's the universe. It's the universe, heaven, and the earth that is being noted here. Literally, that means all of physical creation. Everything that you and I can imagine because it's like something that we can see and touch and hear and taste and feel. That was created by the power of Christ. And by the way... How powerful was this creation? Well, science tells us that the universe is still doing what? It's still expanding. Why is it still expanding? Because it says that they were created by the word of His power. In Hebrews 1, it says that Christ created all these things by the word of His power. The reason it's still expanding is because He said be and He never said now stop being. His word is so powerful that unless he stops it, it continues to go. The reason when we turn the lights on that you've never seen a speck of darkness in the middle of the room when the light gets flicked on, the darkness goes, I ain't moving. It's mine. The darkness runs under the pews or anywhere that a shadow can exist because he said, let there be light. And there was light and he separated light from the darkness by the power of his word. Light and darkness still had that separation by the power of the word that he spoke eons ago. He has created everything that has ever been in physical existence. But more than that, it says visible and invisible. Now we get to where He created the heaven that we think about, where God is seated on His throne. We think of hell that Christ created for the punishment of fallen angels and all wicked sinners that will reject His sacrifice on their behalf. He even created all government and all authority. The people that won the election last night, they won out of the sovereign choice of God. He is the one who establishes government. He's the one that came up with the idea of it and establishes seats of government. And he's the one that puts men there. That's what Jesus meant when he was speaking to Pontius Pilate. And he said, unless it had been given to you from above, you would have no authority over me. God established Pilate in a governmental place of authority to condemn his son to death for his purpose. And he does the same thing with men all over the world today in government. In fact, Christ is even the one that establishes the throne of God in heaven according to Psalm 93. He has set his throne in the heavens. He built it there. It's founded on his own righteousness. Now, as we said... He gave this kind of power up. And that's a lot of power, by the way. He gave this power up for a short while in order to come and propitiate for His people who were lost in sin. 
but he has risen in victory over all enemies, including the final enemy. Now, here's the question that we have to ask. While Jesus was on earth in human form, I'm going to give you a statement. I want you to just listen for a second. While Jesus was still walking around on earth in human form, if we could go back 2,000 years or so to the first century A.D. and we saw Christ in a physical body walking around before the, the crucifixion, as long as any enemy was left to contend with Christ or His people, there could theoretically be a question as to whether or not the God-man Jesus had total authority. The people that saw Christ walking around, they could theoretically think the same thing that we think about all men. It doesn't matter how powerful you are, how invincible you are, how strong you are, how rich you are. Eventually, death comes for all, does it not? The question would be, how is this man going to overcome death? The greatest that they'd ever known, biblically speaking, throughout the Old Testament, death still came for him. Moses did some pretty impressive stuff, did he not? Parting the Red Sea, the ten plagues, all those things. What happened to Moses? He died. Elisha did greater works than Elijah did. Raised more people from the dead, did all these great things. Guess what? He died. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or my shack, your shack, and a bungalow, however you want to say it. They went into the fiery furnace, came out not even smelling like smoke, and then at some point they died. So all these great men of God who had been so anointed and so, uh, so gifted had done all these things. Even John the Baptist, who was the greatest of all that had been born of women up to that point, had been beheaded and died. So the question was... How powerful is this man who claims to be the Messiah? What will happen when he dies? Whether it be on a cross or old age, what will happen? Will he come back? The question that everybody had and the question that most people, a Christian, the question that everybody that is not a believer still is on the wrong side of today is what would Christ do with the final enemy? And it's as 1 Corinthians 15 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We all know that. We all know that no matter how, how uh, healthy we are, how young and good looking we are right now, uh, how, how much we try to put it off and all that kind of stuff, death is coming for all of us. And for the lost person, for the unredeemed, and at times for even the believer that faces death, death can be what? Terrifying, right? If, you know, I've heard a lot of people that try to be really macho Kyle and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying Kyle's one of them. I'm not saying he's not, you know, but I'm just saying... Uh, there was, I stepped in a quagmire there. There's no way to get out of that. Me and Kyle still be friends. I had to abort. There, uh, <laughs> they, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of people try to be real tough and all that kind of stuff. Like, I ain't scared of dying, that kind of stuff. Really now? Let's get on a plane, get 30,000 feet in the air, and all of a sudden the pilot goes, uh, this, it's bad, guys. Hold on. And you just hear it go, start screaming down. What's everybody going to do? Scream like a girl. 300-pound offensive lineman from Mississippi State. Screaming for their mama or the God they claim doesn't exist. Why? Because they're terrified. Why are we terrified? Because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into the heart of man. What that means is, number one, we were made to have a relationship with the eternal one, Christ. But also, that means that we understand that there is an eternity. Innately, in our nature, we know there is an eternity. Guys, we were created to live eternally. Sin corrupted that. Christ came to redeem that back for us. But we were created for eternal dwelling with God in the beginning. We understand by our nature there is an eternity. So we know by our very nature that 
Hebrews 9.27 is true. It says it's appointed once for each man to die and then comes the judgment. Every human being really knows there's some kind of judgment. Why do you think there is? Uh, why do you think there are so many religions out there that go to such great lengths to try to fabricate such far-fetched and ingenuous ideas about what happens when you die? Oh, you can reincarnate. If you blow it bad this life, you come back as a cockroach in the Mize basketball gym. If you're a good cockroach, you come back as a rat. Eventually, you work your way up to being Emily. That was a joke. <laughs> no, about one more step. No, <laughs> she was a skunk last time. So, it's, no. For everybody listening on the on the on the, the iPod, that was a joke. <laughs> and there really is an Emily, by the way. You should come to Mize First Baptist and see her. Anyway. What do you, why is it do you think when you talk to an atheist or a proclaiming atheist that when you start challenging their views about why there is no God and why there is a God that they will always, nearly always become irate almost. Very snarky, very disrespectful, very angry and tense and all that kind of stuff. Why? Because they really know deep down inside that there is a God. That's why they fight so hard to try to believe there's not one. And it challenges the only thing that lets them sleep at night whenever you start poking holes in it. We all know that that's true. And we all fear this because we know that we're guilty and fall short of God's standard for perfection. God says, you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we all know that we fall short of that. So we're scared of death. And Jesus came and conquered this enemy. And in so doing, He also destroyed the work of the devil. According to 1 John 3, 8, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Sorry, that was Hebrews 2, 14-15. Uh, 1 John 3, 8 kind of clarifies when it says destroys the devil. It means destroys the work of the devil at this point and then ultimately Satan and hell at a later time. So what does this mean for us? The fact that he has conquered the last enemy, conquered death by his power but in human form. That means basically two things. That means, number one, we don't have to be afraid of death anymore if we're in Christ because... Uh, Death has been fully spilled out and there's no more potency left in the curse of death. And number two, it means that now for us, death, which we once feared, is now a gift given to us by the one who loves us. Real quickly, what does that mean? Well, first of all, if you look in the Old Testament, the fullest summation of all of the curse of sin prescribed by the law. If you had done anything in the law that could not be supposedly covered by the blood of a bull or goat, or if you read the law all the way through, you get the fine gaping sweep that at some point in time in reading that, you get the understanding there's no way anybody can do this and not come out fully guilty where God would pronounce over them, He shall bear His own iniquity. We're all there. And God gives the summation of that kind of curse uh, in Deuteronomy 21-23, saying that that man should be killed and hanged upon a tree. Because cursed by God is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. 
In Galatians 3.13, we see Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What that means is this. Because of that, we can stop haggling over all the, well, I, I sinned and I did this, but I didn't do this, this, and this. Or, you know, I, I never did this. Or I only did this one time. Or, you know, I did this, but God knows my heart. I didn't really mean this when I did this. We can forget all that. Guess what? You're really that bad. You're that bad. I'm that bad. We're all that bad. Everybody's totally guilty. We're all wicked at the core. We're totally bad. And the point is, is that in our wickedness, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for who? The ungodly. Not the godly, not those who are even pretending to be godly, not those that are sort of godly. He, cried, he died for the ungodly. What happened is he took us in himself. We were hidden in Christ so that we could say with Paul, I was crucified with Christ. Yet I live. Not I, but Christ that lives within me. For the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, I live by faith in Christ Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. We were hidden in Christ. We are his flesh, his body, his bride. We are hung there in the eyes of God with Christ. And when God poured out all the wrath, all the curse for the entire law that you and I are guilty for. He was pouring it out on us, but it never touched us. It hit the buffer. It hit the rock of Christ that we were hidden in. Poured all around us, but never touched us, never harmed us. Totally destroyed him. But the great thing about that is that now... Death doesn't scare us anymore because there's no more curse. Judgment can actually be something we look forward to. I read one of the great Puritans the other day and he was praying a prayer I never thought to pray in my entire life. He was praying, Lord Jesus, please, please come and judge me so that judgment can be passed and then we get, I get to experience you for eternity in your love. Never thought about it like that before. But that's really true because all the curse has passed. Christ took all the curse for all of our badness at one time. It's none left for us to endure. Secondly, because of that, now we look forward to death. Death is freedom. Death is where now we look around the world and we see all the pain that people go through. We see all the, the, the malcontents. We see and we hear and we know and we experience all the pain and all the anguish and all the depression and all the anxiety, all the hopelessness, all the strife, all the tension, all the doom, all those things that loom and wear and weigh on all of mankind. We see those things. We experience those things. But unlike the lost world, we who are in Christ know that when death comes for us, it's not a defeat. That is our victory lap. That's where we get to cross the finish line and we get our reward. We look forward to death. Does that mean that when we are close to death, there won't be moments of fear and uncertainty, that kind of stuff? I don't think so. I think everybody goes through that. But if our faith is strong and grounded where it should be, the ultimate sweep of our thoughts is, come, sweet death, bring me to my Lord. Deliver me to the one that loves me. Now because of that, having conquered all enemies, the Bible says of Jesus in Philippians 2, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Christ Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus 
was given back what he once freely gave up because he earned it back. He proved how awesome and how powerful he was. He earned back what he was not intimidated to lay aside. Now, because of that, real quickly, three things. There, I told you that there was a commission to believers. There's also a command to everyone else because of that authority. He said, all authority has been given to me. Now you go out and do these things. The understood command is this. Disciples, of course, are commanded to go out and preach. Everyone else is commanded to hear and believe. The king of all the universe says to all in the world right now, this second, both in this room and in everywhere outside this room, he says, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. The king of the universe commands that every person do that. Now, you would say, well, don't we have a choice? Yes, you absolutely have a choice. You have a choice in the same way that if a literal king over the nation stood before you in all his regal authority and he said, you do this and you said, no, I will not. He has the cho- He has the right to destroy you. You have that choice. You can choose life and obey or you can choose utter destruction and die. And Christ stands ready to do either as the one who has all authority. As he says in Revelation 21, 8, for all those who refuse to have faith and believe the way he commands for us to believe. He says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He is the king. He doesn't beg. He commands. Jesus also commissions disciples to baptize and he commands that all who become believers submit to baptism in heart first and then outwardly as a sign of what has occurred in the heart. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And lastly, He commissions believers to make disciples, teaching others to obey all His teachings. And tonight He calls you and He calls me and He commands everyone that hear the gospel to believe it and to become a disciple. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And also, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. So the king of the ages calls and commands. He commissions you as believers to go out and do all these things that he commands do. He commissions and he commands everyone that is not a believer yet to obey in hearing, believing, responding, and responding continually for the rest of our lives. We can either obey in faith, which leads to life, or we can rebel, which leads to death. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life.